0: This week on Writers Inc.
1: Outline is of paramount importance. You know, I think that that's that's one thing that if you know, people always say, What advice did you give to a young writer? I mean, there's a lot of things you can say to your mind. Outline your books, plan your book.
0: Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's in.
2: So, Zach, uh, things being whipped out at school? <laughs> oh, my God. You
3: had to bring that up on the podcast. Jeez. Uh, now I have to explain it.
2: You don't have to. Uh, you can punt. It's
3: fine. I mean, you know, just... I guess I have to say it now, yeah. So I'm in line at school to pick my seven-year-old up, and the principal walks up to my car and asks me to roll down the window. And I'm like, "What's this about?" And proceeds to inform me that some boy uh, stole my daughter's toy and showed her his penis, is what she said in her words. So, so was this like th- in,
4: in trade? Like, here, I'll show you this, and <laughs> so I get to keep the toy. I don't know why. <laughs>
3: I was like, man, I'm not supposed to, I don't want to have to be worrying about this, this early. She's seven, you know, but, uh, I, you know, I, I was also like, I know what, I know how boys are like, my reaction must've been so nonchalant. Cause I was just like, I kind of glad it was me and not my wife. Cause I think she would have flipped out. And I was just kind of <laughs> like, what do you say to that? Like, I mean, she told me she was going to handle it they were going to discipline them. And I'm like, okay.
2: Yeah. You, you just know? say, uh, yeah, don't do that. <laughs>
3: Uh, that's what i'm that's what i'm thinking which is not the 2021 thing to say i mean uh, okay in all seriousness my first concern was like to make sure Haley was fine like that it didn't traumatize her or something and she was totally cool she was like she was all good she was loud she wasn't really talking about it much so that was once that was out of the way yeah i was kind of just like what i mean that's what boys do you know
4: honestly it's probably more freaky for you as a parent than it was for her you know, it's probably one of, one of those weird dynamic things. I, I would probably go full tilt. Don't have the kid put on a sex offender list and <laughs> ostracized from the community, you know, scar, scar scarlet was, P on his shirt, whatever you have to do.
3: It was probably re- the, the, the principal was probably in the most awkward position. Like, because again, I was like, as long as she's fine, I mean, like there's nothing that could be, I mean, the boy just did something stupid, you know? Um,
4: but, uh, but
3: yeah, I don't know, but yeah, thanks for bringing that up on the air. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> what else are we going to talk about i don't know
4: stephen king why not um I, I actually, I don't know if you guys saw this. He, he's doing a, a, he put out a short story through something called um, Humble Bumble, I think it was. Or, yeah, Humble Bumble, yeah. Yeah, so he's raising money for, for a charity, um, but he put a short story out there. And at last check, it was over $120,000 that he raised in about three days. Nice, nice. Um, I've never used that site before. And I kind of want to check it out just to get a little bit more familiar with it. But it looks like, you know, once you pay anywhere from $5 to whatever you decide, you can download the, the ebook as, you know, a Mobi, an EPUB, PDF, um, whatever you want. And then I guess you're, you're kind of on your own to, to get it on your device. Have you, either of you guys ever used it before?
3: I've never sold books. I'm very familiar with it. It's actually really big in video games. There's a lot of companies that do that. They bundle up games and do them through humble, bumble, um, humble bundle. Sorry. Um, and, uh, it, it's, it's, I, I think humble bundle actually has their own gaming company at this point. Like that's how big it is in the video game part. Um, but uh, yeah, they do books and stuff as well. And, uh, I don't know if it's like an invite type thing or if you can just go on there and do it. I haven't looked that far into it, but uh it's definitely a legit site and definitely something that is really cool and they put they put together some really good packages um you know for for people to buy and then you know it goes to a good cause type of thing. So
4: I'm, I'm looking at it just more from a technical standpoint because you know, it's, it's a little trickier to get the, you know, cause I went ahead and did it, um, you know, and then you get a, a little download link and then you can download it to your computer. But then from there you have to get it on your Kindle. And I don't know how many people out there actually know yeah. how to do that. Like I know Joanna is selling stuff direct on her site, um, using Payhip and and book funnel. I know book has got a lot of videos and things to support that. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, at, at some point that this is going to kind of, you know, get to the point where everybody just sort of knows how to do it. You know, it's, it's going to be a simple process, but I'm just not sure. If for that far along, you know, with ebook readers where, you know, everybody knows. Um, so I'm just kind of curious. Well, and I don't
3: think it's again, like, I don't think with humble, humble bum, I keep wanting to say bumble, <laughs> humble bundle. I don't think it's there. I don't think books is necessarily like their forte. So, cause like ever since I started using book funnel, I don't get, I haven't gotten one email on how to download a book. Like, I mean, it's that's very intuitive, but that is a problem. Like what you're saying, because, with a website like this, they're just—they're not going to use a delivery system like that. So, because I know with games, you just get a download code, and then you just go on whatever the platform you want to play the game on and just put the code in. So they're—they're they're probably since that's their main thing, they probably aren't really like putting a ton of effort into like how to deliver books, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah. I mean, my general thinking is you wants know, to, the, the population, you know, like the, the largest number of people understands how to do that. Then sites like Amazon are going to have far less of a stranglehold on everybody. Cause obviously right now it's so easy. You just click on Kindle and bam, it's there and you're done. Um, but people, you know, once they get to the point where it's, it's simple enough to do it and if you, if they understand the process, then I think a lot more of these types of sites are going to pop up and that's going to create some competition, which is good for everybody.
2: Yeah. And, uh, The other great thing about Bookfunnel, if anyone is considering selling direct off their website, is Bookfunnel has a a dedicated customer service team. So even if you do get an email from a reader that says, "I don't know how to get this on my Kindle," you can send them to Bookfunnel, and the Bookfunnel people will walk them through getting it on their device. So that's a really nice sort of peace of mind thing when you're selling direct is not having to to worry about that. Because I remember like ten plus years ago. Like you you had to sideload stuff, anything you sold sold direct and and, you know, that was hard to get walking people through it or explaining it. I mean, I remember making web pages with instructions on how to sideload to your Kindle and just not many people were gonna do that.
4: Well, I, I helped my wife with it, and you know, I, I, she downloaded it and got you know did the same type of thing. But you know, she had never done that before with her Kindle, so like there was all the setup stuff in, in place. Like she had to send the, the file off to the Kindle email address, then she had to verify that it was actually her and make sure that the email address she was sending from was on their you know their whitelist, so it was allowed to do it. So there's there's a lot of hoops to jump through, but um, you know, it's it's nice to see that kind of thing happening, and I'm hoping it becomes useful to the masses.
3: Just so you know, there is an app you can use called Send to Kindle if you're not aware of it. It's an official Amazon app, and you literally just click and drag the Mobi into the app, and it'll send it to your Kindle. So just for you, for future reference, I think it's a little easier than doing the email thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
4: I'll check it out. Nice. Well, Well, we
2: got slightly uh, embarrassing personal story. We got Stephen King (laughs) reference. Any construction updates we need to address on on the episode?
4: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, actually. Um, <laughs> so this is kind of funny. So I've got this two-story garage going up, and we ordered it through um, through Home Depot. They've got a, a company that they they own or they subcontract through called Tough Shed, um, and they basically prefab everything. So they design it all in CAD. They, they actually build the garage in, in their warehouse. He said they can actually go up to 80 feet tall as far as structures. They completely put it together in their warehouse, and then they take it apart, and it's like a giant car kit. You know, everything is numbered. So all these pieces show up on trailers, and it's numbered, and they put this entire two-story garage up in a day and a half. It was insane how fast they did it. Uh, but they did it so fast, the building inspector didn't get a chance to stop by and weigh in. So when he came out here and looked at it, there's a full on two story garage with the roof all shingled, ready to go sitting up at the, the top of my driveway. And first thing he did was he looked at it and said, Well, um, they didn't use the right type of plywood on the roof. So now they've got to pull the entire roof off and, and kind of redo that. So the moral of the story is don't piss off the building inspector by rushing a job and <laughs> trying trying to get it trying to sneak it in under the radar.
3: Did you have to delay your Tesla delivery for your new garage?
4: (laughs) I can't get the Roadster yet.
3: (laughs) Is that the one that they have the plaid version? The one that you named after Spaceballs that goes like zero to 60 in like 0.2 seconds or something?
4: No, it's actually not out yet. So they, Tesla used to make a Roadster years back. That was their very first car. And I, I was lucky enough to drive one of those things when they, they first had them. And it was insanely fast. But apparently they're coming out with a new one. And I was looking at Tesla's from my wife because she's in the, the car market and learned that they're putting out a brand new Roadster. Um, so you can get on the waiting list for fifty grand, and it starts at two fifty for the actual car. Um, the, the specs are ridiculous. It, it's got a 600-some mile range on the battery, but 0 to 60 in 1.9 seconds and a top speed of 250 miles an hour. Yeah, which is perfect for around here in new england where the you know top speed limit is like 20 um but yeah it'll it'll look nice up in the garage i have no idea when i'll, I'll actually get it but um I, I know the waiting list is out there so right on. anyway nice. <laughs> <laughs> next
3: week
2: on the show elon musk
4: elon musk
2: <laughs> all right well let's take care of some business and then we will get to uh the guests plural for the week Uh, We want to give a nice shout out to our wonderful sponsors over there at Kobo Writing Life who empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. You know at Kobo that you never have any exclusivity agreements. You get monthly promotional opportunities. And best of all, Tara and her team will take care of you personally if you have any issues or concerns. So make sure you head on over to KoboWritingLife.com where you can get started today. We also want to give a really nice warm shout out to all of our patrons supporting the show. If you would like to become a patron and contribute questions to our monthly Q&A episode, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. JD, who is on the deck today?
4: So this is going to be interesting. So, you know, all of us are writers, um, and obviously you have to have a spouse that's extremely supportive of that career. You know, if you're locking yourself in your office for, you know, four, five, six hours at a time, making up words for zero pay, you need somebody who really understands, you know, what that's all about. So today we've got... um, John and Jesse Kellerman, and I grew up reading John and Faye Kellerman. Uh, his parent, uh, Jesse's parents. Um, they've they've been writing for a very long time. They're they're staples at uh, Thriller Fest. Um, fantastic, you know, number of thrillers out there. You know, New York Times bestsellers for years and years and years. Um, but their, their son Jesse is also a writer. Um, so this is going to be very interesting because we've got parents and son all all in the same profession, um, all writing, you know, more or less in the, the same you know the same market. Um, so here they are, John and Jesse Kellerman.
2: Well, I, I think I want to ask Jesse the first question, which is, what's Thanksgiving dinner like at the Kellerman House? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, so one thing that's really important I really want to make clear is that I don't live with my parents anymore. I'm, 40, I'm 43 years old. I haven't lived here in 25 years. Because sometimes I think people, people have this idea that I'm still living at home and maybe in the attic or something and raising my family on on the fourth floor. So I, I moved out. Um but so there must be the, another phantom up in
5: the attic i thought yeah, it was who's,
1: you <laughs> who's making all that noise um so so um but on the on uh, on the occasion of thanksgiving when we do all get together because uh, thanksgiving is a kellerman holiday as opposed to my wife's family uh it is a loud gut-busting raucous affair particularly and 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 this is, you know, something that, you know, just gets worse and worse every year. There's, there's all these kids running around now at this point. It's just this, it's complete pand- pandemonium. But we do not talk about books and that is, uh, or at least our books. And that is something that holds true for any time we're all together and was also true when I was growing up. We did not sit around the dinner table discussing how to write or workshopping our, our material. We were a f- normal family. I mean, normal, you know, with uh, <laughs> in, in, in quotes. Um, And that was really critical, I think, to both my mental health and my development as a writer, which is that I I didn't feel like I was being pushed into being a writer or being coached or any of that. Uh, It was just all the normal, typical family stuff.
2: Fair enough. Jonathan, was that uh, intentional, uh, an intentional choice for you and your wife to to keep that, that business side sort of cloaked?
5: Yeah, I mean, Faye and I both came from other fields, so we had been married 12 or 13 years by the time we got published so we and we had most of our kids, we have four and three had been born prior to us breaking into publication. So we were really just um, and I really owe it to, to the woman I call the famous fake Kellerman because even though she's written a lot of bestsellers and she's got a degree in theoretical math and a doctorate, she's a very solid midwestern born person. You know, even though she grew up mostly in California, she's from St. Louis. And I think some of that really stuck and she's got very solid values and it kept me straight. And so we, and because I was into kids as a psychologist, we were really a child-oriented family. And um, Thanksgiving is interesting because now, thank God, I mean, we have four four kids are all married to great people and we have nine grandkids so far. So there's like 20 of us. So it's like a big clan. When we get together, the for Thanksgiving, it's really about food, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and you know, it, it's interesting because Faye is a, a gourmet cook on top of everything else. But now the kids have have got all four of them, including Jesse, are great cooks. and They all have great palates, so everybody pitches in, and we have a lot of good stuff there. And uh, it's just a fun time. It's a fun time.
2: This is gonna sound like a really cheesy prep question, but I swear yeah. I just thought of this. Yeah. Uh, the connection between being a good cook and being a, a great writer, uh, hmm. is there some connection there? And if so, what do you think it might be? Well, not in my case. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Jesse, I, I you said it's a great cook, right? I, I really didn't
5: like cooking. I learned how to cook fish, actually. So I'm a good fish fish cook. It's not something I take to. But yeah, I think anytime you, anytime you're doing a complex task that requires a good deal of executive functioning, the ability to multitask and do several things, I think it, it – it plays and writing is certainly the acme of that. I can't think of anything that requires, writing fiction in particular, more drawing upon so many different things at the same time.
1: My dad is selling himself for, he's actually quite a capable cook. He, he just doesn't do it a lot, but, he's, but, he's, but he is quite good. Someone asked me recently, if you were a writer, what would you, did they ask me to just sort of, uh, you know, spit out the first thing that popped into my mind? And I said, chef, that was the thing that popped into my mind. Um, I, I think for me, um, all the things my dad mentioned, uh, all true for me, the key, uh, thing that I enjoy about it so much is that it is creative, but non-verbal. And at the end of the day, I am just out of words. Like the tank is just empty. Um, so, but I still like to be active and, and to do things. And so to be able to turn my attention to something that's really concrete, really physical, and you get to eat the product at the end. Um, that's, that's a joy for me.
2: I can totally understand that. And, and I think yeah. it's also a, a great segue into the fact that you guys are both guitarists or, or musicians, yeah. even more so yeah. than just guitarists. Seems like that's a, a parallel as well. That's a, a physical, nonverbal, creative pursuit. Jonathan, before we start recording, you were telling me that um, you've been playing for over 60 years. Uh, tell yeah. us about your, your guitar collection
5: a little bit crazy, um, although it, it actually ended up being a wonderful experience because it led me to meet a lot of fascinating people. I've had everybody from Sharon Isbin, the head of classical guitar at Juilliard and Pepe Romero to Steve Vai and my late buddy Warren Zevon coming by and Andy Summers. So I've met a lot of interesting folk, but the guitar has always been a passion of mine that I can't explain because as I was saying before. I started playing before it was a popular deal. I mean it was before the Beatles, before the rock and roll thing. The the primary instrument in duop was the sax at that point, but I just was attracted at the age of 6 or 7 to the guitar and I started playing at the age of 9. And I just can't explain it, but it's been wonderful and so over the years I had no money early on, so I had these crappy guitars and you know I I in my guitar book Uh, which I wrote back in 2007 with strings attached, I mentioned that I used to get electrocuted by by my magnetone amp and my Gibson Melody Maker. Really, it was pretty scary. So in the 80s, before I was published, but I was working as a psychologist and doing pretty well, I started to buy instruments. But but to show what it's like, I mean, one day I had had a tough time seeing patients all day and there was a guitar dealer close to one of my offices and i just walked in and i said i deserve something and i bought a 53 telecaster and a 64 strat for a total of 2500 dollars
2: oh my goodness
5: and today they're worth what 50 60 grand between them i mean the key is to pay retail and get old basically <laughs> so 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 my wife was very smart because i used to buy them and sell them and trade up and then she finally said uh, why don't you hold on to some of these? I think they're going to appreciate. So I ended up with some really beautiful instruments. and I do try to play them all. And I have them in a beautiful little museum in our house. And that is my refuge when I finish writing. Generally, what I'm going to do is go play guitar or or I paint. That's something else that I do. So those are my escapes. And Of course, you know, going to the gym and working out and try to be fit. But as much as uh, Jessie's being kind about my cooking, I, I try to punt to Faye mostly because she's <laughs> a, way- yes, he's a great cook. Jesse's excellent, but uh, I'm adequate.
2: <laughs> Jesse, when you were a kid, did you sneak into dad's uh, spaces and, and and sneak some riffs on his guitars or are those off
1: limits? So, OK, so I started out playing the drums. That was my instrument. I was, I think, five or six. And my parents, I, looking back, I, I only realized now that I have my own children how insane this was. They bought me a drum kit and they put it in the in the living room it was like the first thing you saw when you came into the house was this kit and i would pound away on this kit in the middle of the, i would never do that i have, I have children now who like no you cannot put a drum kit in the living but they you know that goes to show a, a what kind of how tolerant and supportive they were and b how important music was to our family the front room of the house that i grew up in my parents don't live there anymore they moved when i was in high school was a little bit of the music room there was a piano and my dad had a bunch of his guitars out. They were not, I think my dad has always felt that uh, instruments are there to be played. They're, 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 he doesn't collect things for novelty value or because they're fun to look at, although some of them are very beautiful, but music is supposed to be made on these things. And, and they, they they atrophy if you don't play them, they, they need to be played. So I had, when I did, uh, when I switched over to playing the guitar, uh, which was, you know, maybe tw- 13 or something, I got tired of, uh, you know, drumming on my own. Um, I said, I want to play. And he said, sure. And he just handed me an instrument and the Mel De chord book. And, uh, and, and I was off to the races from there. I was never told you can't play that. Well, you know, we want to take care with some, with some of the, some of the nicer pieces, but I was never told, no, you can't, you can't pick that up.
5: Well, Jesse was an interesting guy because even at a young age, he was extremely meticulous way more than I was at that age, I could take him to a restaurant in a white shirt at the age of three. And he'd leave the restaurant with a clean white shirt. So I knew he knew how to take care of things. He was, you know, I have a bunch of grandkids, they like to go in the guitar room, I do keep my eyes open, I let them <laughs> gently touch. But with Jesse it was always uh, he was a serious musician. I mean, when when he wanted to play guitar, I said, sure. And I got him the chord book. And then I, I said, let me get you a t shirt, because I really think it's, you should learn it like anything else, like I did. And yeah. it took a while. And by the time I got him the teacher, he had taught himself so much guitar. He's just a very talented musician. Jesse's one of those guys who could pick up almost anything and play it. So uh, then he had a good teacher and he learned his technique and he had a band and uh, you know, it's it, he's a great musician. Uh, I uh, My other, we have three, I have, he has three sisters. Uh, one plays the piano quite well. One started with the harp that gave it up, and one of them was an amazing three octave singer. So there's a lot of musicality, mostly from side, that goes through our family. And uh, we can all sing and carry tunes and that kind of thing. But it's, it's I, I just look at the guitar as something nonverbal, as you mentioned, something nonverbal.
1: And Dad, you did not have music in the house growing up. That was not like a part of your no. upbringing. So it was a de novo thing for him to to want to do that.
5: I've always been a freak in my family. I mean, there were a lot of writers in my family, but distant relatives. Uh, There was no encouragement the way we at least didn't discourage our children. And nobody played an instrument, except my uncles, who played the violin and the concertina rather poorly, even though they were great guys. So I've always just had my own vision and forged ahead. And I asked my mom, who's now 102, I asked her, she'll she'll be 102 in January. I asked her many years ago, I said, how come you were so much stricter with me than with my two younger sibs? And she sighed and said, you took all the fight out of me. (laughs) 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 So that's, that's the way I've always been. I have a vision. I follow it. I do what I want to do. Even becoming a psychologist, you know, I got a doctorate in 74, was not a typical thing. It was almost looked on as a weird thing, but it's what I wanted to do. So I did.
2: Well, I could talk music with you guys all day, yeah. but we should probably talk about some book stuff. Uh, okay, sure. <laughs> uh, I would, uh, you guys, uh, as of, if you're listening to this one a day it comes out, The Burning, uh, the new Clay Edison novel, comes out tomorrow. Uh, Jesse, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this latest installment and what readers can expect?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, the Clay Edison series is uh, the series that my dad and I have been working on for the last, uh, I guess, it's five, four, five years. This is the This is the fourth installment. And Clay is in Alameda County, which is Northern California Bay Area, uh, coroner. Uh, He's a deputy coroner. And so his job uh, is essentially to investigate death, uh, look into the manner of death, uh, to uh, understand how people came to meet their ends, sometimes in gruesome ways. Um, That's the sort of investigative side of of his job. The sort of compassionate side is, He's there to notify next of kin when somebody has passed and to provide support for those people. The first three books um, in the Clay series really concerns crimes that happened in the past. They were cold case books uh, with all that that entails. The time uh, window for the books themselves is quite long. Um, They take place over months or years in some case. Um, The Burning is is a totally different kind of book. It's a ticking clock novel. Um, It takes place over the course of several days instead of several months, and we wanted to do an experiment where we take this guy who's used to working sort of uh, in a sort of thoughtful, careful way and put him in a pressure cooker and see how he responds. So it's a book in which Clay himself is put to the test and his own ability to get himself out of trouble rather than to figure out a crime that has happened in the past is, is is sort of, uh, that's, that's put to the test. Um, so we really, really tried to crank up both the pace of the book, uh, as well as uh, the, the, the immediate tension of what's happening. Uh, in, you know, in a sentence without spoiling too much, he's called to the scene of a crime to investigate um, a homicide. And while at the scene of the crime, he discovers a link to his brother, who is himself an ex-convict. Uh, and things just go spiraling completely out of control from there. Um, so we're really excited uh, to get it to readers because it is both of a piece and a novel thing uh, in in this series. If you love Clay, you're going to love this book. I think even uh, even more than the previous ones.
5: If any book is a page turner, this is a page turner. It really moves fast. There's a lot of action, and the other thing is the burning. The title refers to some of the fires that were burning. Uh, and changing the ecology up in Northern California, where where Jesse lives, and we had both been fans of Russ McDonald, who wrote uh, some wonderful crime novels in the 50s and 60s, and he wrote a book in which in which uh, fire, a forest fire, was was a backdrop, and we and we right. just decided it's relevant without being too heavy-handed about it. It's not an ecological novel, but it is a novel in which. There's a franticness about uh, Clay and his and his need to find out what's going on because his brother is involved in this and what's going on in the external world. You can't escape it when things are burning down and the air is toxic. So we thought we would mm-hmm. try that. And I think we did it.
1: How did yeah. you guys come to that decision? To, to write about the fires?
2: Uh, well, to, to make the small pivot with Clay and putting him in more immediate danger.
1: You know, I, the thing is, I don't, wasn't a deliberate decision of let's, let's write a, a, a supercharged book. It was more that, um, you know, in the same way that all ideas come to us and we look at them and say, is this something we want to write about? Is this, is this a good idea? You know, I, I had, um, you know, I, I think I had, uh, we had gone back and forth about the idea of, of, of pivoting slightly and writing a very, very fast paced book um, before we wrote the previous book, um, Half Moon Bay. And we, we so we had this idea that we wanted to try this experiment, this uh, this sort of like, you know, formal experiment. Um, but we didn't have the story to match it yet. We, we we had we had the pace, but we didn't know what 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 the driver of that pace was going to be. We wrote Half Moon Bay, and in the course of writing that, the fires happened, and and uh, that started us thinking about, um, oh, maybe this is a good engine for this for this story.
5: And for us. Uh both in the books we write as singletons or as a team, I find you know novel writing about a year long process of which half is planning, half is thinking, half is discussing. When I write a singleton novel by, by myself, I'm talking to myself. When Jesse and I collaborate, we are talking to each other all the time. We live in different cities, so we'll fly up or down. We have story conferences. We do a lot of discussion before we sit down and start writing the book. And so it kind of evolves in an organic way. I mean, I, I collaborating with Jesse has been wonderful because we seem to have a rapport uh, in which we're, I'm not saying we're thinking the same way, but we there just seems to be a confluence of ideas where, you know, when you collaborate or when you play in a band, let's say, if your bandmates have good chops and they're good musicians, there's a certain flow that you can achieve. I'm sure you've experienced that. And, and so same thing with writing, when you have a writing partner, who's really good and sees things in an acute way, it just creates a certain magic, I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That, that doesn't seem to be uh, something that occurs naturally very often. I I really believe good collaborators have to work together. So what, what does your process look like now? like when, when you guys sit down, is there an outline that you're working from? Are you doing an A B format? Sort of, what is what's the internal mechanics look like?
1: Well, so uh, out, outline is of paramount importance. You know, I think that that's that's one thing that if you know people always say, "What advice did you give to a young writer?" I mean, there's a lot of things you can say to a young outline your books, plan your books. Don't, don't, I mean, there, there are some people who claim to work without a net and I have a tremendous respect for them and I, I hold them in awe because I can't do that. As my dad said, my dad used the word meticulous. I would say anal. I'm anal about this kind of stuff. <laughs> I like to, I like to have a roadmap. Um, so we spend a lot of time, as my dad said, just, sitting and sort of like spitballing, you know, well, what about this? Well, what about this? It's a little bit like a tiny little writer's room for for television. It's just the two of us, Um, you know, and uh, through that conversation, the ideas start to emerge. We start to outline, put things down on paper and refine them. The outlines that we do tend to be long and very detailed. Sometimes uh, anywhere between 30 and 70 pages almost like a like a quasi book um um, now oftentimes we start working and we find that the story starts to deviate from from that outline and you can look back and say hey this is not where i I intended to go with this thing but having that background and having thought it through um, is immensely psychologically beneficial I found to the process because invariably you're going to get to a point where you're like, where, where am I? What What is happening here? Um, and so to have that thing to refer to and at least to be able to say, okay, that is where I intended to go. Um, and maybe I don't necessarily want to go there now and I, I can see that based on what I've written. Um, but here are my options. It's, it's, it's almost like a security blanket at, at that time at that yeah. in the process.
5: Okay. I mean, I think the outline is a confidence builder. And for me, it's prevented writer's block, never experienced it, don't know what it is. I I remember being um, at a symposium with the late uh, Robert B. Parker, who created Spencer. And someone says, uh, Mr. Parker, can you comment on on writer's block? He says, when you call the plumber, does he say I can't come because I have plumber's block? That's a lot of bullshit, <laughs> you know? Uh, I've never experienced it. And I think outlining's part of it. It took me a while to learn to do it, but I, my basis in it was i came from academic medicine and i I had published a lot of scientific articles and you really have to be meticulous and source everything and quote everything and and so i learned to outline medical articles and psychological articles and that i think helped me apply that to writing fiction but as jesse mentioned it's you look back and you've written a totally different book but I, I liken it to construction. You know, you need to frame a house. The outline is the framing. The writing is interior decorating. If you have interior decorating without a framework, it collapses. Yeah. But, you know, Parker didn't outline and Elmore Leonard didn't outline. And they can pull it off. I'm not that smart.
2: What, uh, maybe well, what maybe we will start with Jesse, but I like both you guys to answer this one. What does your writing routine look like? Do, are you a daily writer? Do you write in batches? Do you write in the morning? A certain place?
1: I am definitely a creature of habit. I'm extremely regimented. I have to because, like I said, I have I have little kids, and so you know I have to make sure that I'm at the desk at the same time every day. Um Yeah, it's it's you have to, and this is probably one of the chief lessons uh that I learned growing up with two writer parents is you have to treat this like a job. You have to put your butt in the chair and do it, whether you feel like it or not. Um, And some days you're going to write and it's going to be great. And angels will be singing and the muse will be gently stroking your head as you, as as you type. And some days it's going to be miserable and you're going to have to go back a day later and delete most or all of what you've written. But the momentum, the process, writing begets, writing. It's, it's, you don't sit there, the longer you sit there and wait for something to happen, the less likely it is to happen. Um, So, so I'm in my chair, my kids, my kids go off to school and I'm in my chair every day at the same time typing. And I, I work to a page quota. Um, I started doing that in college um, when I wrote my first novel, which was my sophomore year of college. Um, And back, I think I started with uh, two pages a day. Um, Then as I sort of got more proficient um, when I was in, in my early twenties, the quota gradually crept up, and I think at my peak I was writing ten pages a day. Um, now they weren't necessarily good pages, but but I was putting a lot of words on the on, on on the page. Then I had kids, and slowly the quota has crept back down. So I'm back down to approximately where I was in college, which is two to three pages a day. If I could get that, I'm happy. But the, but the, one of the things that you get with experience is that they're a better two or three pages. It's a more efficient two or three pages. I'd rather have two or three good pages than 10 pages of garbage.
5: My routine has evolved. My initial novels were written the first five or six. I had four or five bestsellers while in full-time practice as a psychologist. And um, I had a big practice with people working for me in multiple offices. And then I had kids to be with and, and a family. So I used to write from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Then when I got to do it full time, I found I preferred the morning. So I, I prefer to be a morning writer, but I'm not wedded to it. If something comes up in the morning, for example, now we're, we're doing this interview, I haven't written, I'll be fine as soon as we finish sitting down and writing. Um, I never had a quota. I, my practice has always been to write until I'm tired, until it's, till the flow stops. And generally that coincides with making a lot of typos. So everything falls apart. I have found it to average out at five pages a day. It's been as little as two, as many as 17. But um, generally I just write for a few hours. And I find that two two or three, four hours of writing feels like eight or nine hours of something else. For some reason, it's extremely tiring. And the only thing I can think of is that you're using so many different brain centers. Um, for example, I used to, love to, I used to love to paint, and that's really what I do best. I was kind of an art prodigy when I was a kid, and I used to, and I still paint, but I found that when I finished writing, I couldn't paint. And there's a guy named Antonio Damasio, who's a neuroscientist at SC. He's like uh, an expert on consciousness, Nobel Prize quality guy. I said, Antonio, why can't I paint after I finish writing? He thought about it. He said, Jonathan, you're probably using all the visual centers of your brain, all those neurons, because you're creating pictures with the words. So there's a lot of overlap. So that's why music is is more feasible, because it's tapping at the different neurons. The way the nervous system works, you use up neurotransmitters, and then they need to be renewed. So I have found uh, I just need to be gentle with myself when I finish and not demand too much.
2: That, that makes me feel so much better to hear you say that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah, I think there's true. a there's a misperception that a lot of um, newer authors have that, well, if I could just get out of my day job or if the kids just went to school, I would just write for eight hours a day every day. And, and that's uh, – I, I don't know too many authors who can pull that
1: off. That's just Anybody an excuse. Is, that's just an yes, excuse. Yes. Anybody who's writing eight hours a day is on meth. That's 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 not possible, and it's just not. And so you know, as as I said before, you know, with with a quality versus quantity comparison, and my dad said, he he knows when to stop. At some point, you're actually doing yourself a disservice by continuing to type because you're filling up the page with stuff that you're then going to go have to go back and clear out. So knowing when to say, you know what this is as much as I can productively do today or during this session. And, and stepping away from the keyboard for a little bit is is a very, very important skill. For me, it was
5: an adjustment because my previous life as a psychologist, I worked in a hospital and I saw patients and I was a medical school professor. And by the end of the day, I knew what I'd done. I knew that I'd put in long, hard days. I worked with kids with cancer for uh, for. 10 years I did research it was a long hard day then I had to adjust to wow I wrote five pages that was that was a day's work you know I I was just (laughs) tired but I had to justify it because I wasn't used to that
2: yeah that that makes that makes total sense yeah. Well, uh, you guys have both been in this industry for a very long time. You've seen a lot of things. So as we kind of pull the conversation to a close, I would love to ask each of you individually where you think the future of publishing is headed.
5: Wow. There's a, <laughs> there's a, in, the, in the Talmud, the code of Jewish law, it says, after the destruction of the second temple in Jerusalem, Prophecy was given over to fools,
0: so, so, so
5: I, I'm loath to say anything. I try not to think about it. There have been a lot of changes, most of which I think are negative in publishing, but I just enjoy what I do. You know, Graham Greene said, uh, once you turn 60, and Jesse's not nearly there, but I'm past there, You, there's two reasons to write, uh, fun or money, and hopefully both. So I just try not to pay attention to the business and not to get too hung up on it, and just to enjoy the process. The only reason that I do it now is because I really like writing fiction. It's so much fun, and I think people are afraid to say I'm having fun. This is great. Mm-hmm. They want to be like martyrs. Oh, I'm you know killing myself. You, if you're miserable at your job, you're probably in the wrong job, I would think. But mm-hmm. you know, I love my job, so I try not to think about. But maybe Jesse has a. Uh, as uh, some view of the future, because he's younger.
1: Well, neither of us are. Neither of us are given to prognostication. And I think anybody who's been alive the last couple of years has probably seen the, as my dad said, the foolishness of attempting to see yeah. beyond beyond <laughs> uh, the, uh, the the end of the week. Um, you know, I, I can only look back and and see what has what has happened and, and and ask, will that continue or will that change? Obviously, there's been tremendous upheaval with respect to um you know the ebook market those the, those are things that have that have uh that that's changed the the economics of the publishing industry tremendously there's a lot more i think the i actually think that the the greatest um, competitor or so to, so to speak is is the Proliferation of television because there's so much content available. There's 8 million channels and it's available on demand. And plus, the quality of television has gotten a lot better in, in, in the last 20, 20 years. To a certain extent, and Dad, you've said this it, books and uh, the book business has always been a little bit of a boutique business. And I think it's become maybe a little bit more of that in, in, in the last 20 years. I don't foresee it. Uh, that like people have been talking about the end of publishing for forever I think you can go back a hundred years and people are talking about the end of publishing you know th- there's always going to be people, people who, who love to read and there's always going to be that need for a greater depth in the story that that uh, fiction and only the written word can provide um it, I will I would close only but so will that continue with I, I have absolutely no idea I would close by only by saying you know attack what my dad said which is that I think that As a writer, you can easily paralyze yourself by getting hung up on what is going to happen to the publishing industry. It's much more salutary for me, or at least for my writing process, to be working on this sentence, this paragraph, this word, this this chapter. In general, like at the risk of getting floofy, I will say that, you know, like a, a present centered existence is probably a more healthful existence than one where I'm sort of looking at the horizon and saying, yeah. oh my God, we're, we're going, we're going over the edge. Will it go over the edge? I don't know. I'm going to enjoy it until we do. So I'm going to, I'm going to work in, until the, until the ship has actually gone over the waterfall. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep typing and having a good time.
5: Well, you know, I, I draw upon again, my background as a psychologist, and it's very interesting. There's been quite a few studies that find that when you ask experts like doctors and psychologists to predict how patients are going to do, they're almost always dead wrong and that they overdo the negativity. And the reason they do that is because when you're a doctor, you're dealing with pathology. So it's easy to see everyone is being sick. And But in general, patients, children in particular, which is the patient group that I treated, do way, way better. That's all this nonsense about this pandemic is gonna cause this generation of, of, of warped children. It's a lot of bullshit. Trust me, in five years, we'll be laughing at it. The same thing with all the dire predictions of everything else going to hell on a handbasket. Pessimism is, pessimists think they're realistic, They okay? You always say, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. Actually, optimism is far more realistic. The world has steadily improved. The main thing now is the news cycle has compressed from 24 hours to 24 seconds. And you've got this desire for clickbait. So there's this constant outpouring of nonsense if you go on the alleged news and they're just trying, they're, you know, misery pimps. They're just trying to scare you so, so they can get a story. It's just nonsense. I had cancer when I was 38. So I learned to live and I was never in threat of dying, but I was sick for a couple of years. I learned to live day by day and live in, live in the present. And, and I think introspection is the biggest enemy of creativity. And uh, you just got to go ahead and, as Jesse said, do the job. And enjoy it or find another job. You know?
2: All right, JD, I got to start with you. <laughs> can I get to ask you about the outlining again? <laughs> 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 it
3: always comes up. Oh, yeah. Uh,
4: geez, yeah. I, I, what if I just tear up the outline and start over? <laughs> well, he, he said outlining eliminates writer's block, and and that is absolutely true when you're writing the book. But you get writer's block when you're writing the outline. Yeah, that is <laughs> or, very or, true. Right? Or, or the yeah. equivalent of it. You know, it's 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 a weird thing. There's there's plenty of times where I'll you know I'll stop. I don't write on Sundays. I don't work on Sundays. Um, but like Saturday, you know, I'll end it with some type of cliffhanger, whether I'm doing an outline or I'm writing a book, um, and I'll spend Spend like all day Sunday thinking about that and, and stuck and thinking that you know like i more or less have writer's block like that's sort of the general thinking like i'm never gonna figure this out i'm screwed i'm gonna sit down i'm not gonna get it and then the second i sit down in front of my computer you know like i, I pound out the next sentence and just start going again and, and the problem more or less solves itself um so you really don't have any type of writer's block when you're working with an outline it really is like you had mentioned that's the, it's the framework for your house um you know you know what you know you're, you're on step a you're moving on to step b step c is right there next um Um, In a lot of ways, for me, it takes the joy out of the the discovery part of the the writing process. Um, But I'm kind of learning to shift that joy to creating the outline. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, it it definitely eliminates a lot of it. um, But, you know, you can still get that creative fun out of putting that outline together. Um, And depending on how detailed you go, you know, you can take it to whatever level you want.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we kind of jokingly knock this this idea around every time we have a guest that's on who's talking about either outlining or not outlining. And and I, I truly believe now that it, it's a non-argument. Um, you know, it's it's discovery writing is whether you're either doing it in the draft or on the outline. Like that, that that's the only that's the only difference really
4: yeah I mean they're working together so that that's you know an outline is a huge benefit when you're working with another person um, you, you don't want to be figuring out this story you know I mean a lot of this depends on the process I've worked on books where you you know you literally volley back and forth chapter by chapter um, and discovery right as you go doing it that way That that's fun too Um, you know that's how uh, Jim and I wrote Coast to Coast Murders you know we didn't know what was coming next I wrote a chapter I tried to leave him with the most difficult cliffhanger I could think of paint him in a corner and volley it back to him and then he would write one and paint me into a corner and we just kind of went back and forth like that Uh, so it's all about what works Um, but you know if you're if you're trying to stick to a schedule particularly if you have a deadline you know that you're trying to hit um, you know having that outline just completely simplifies all all of that
3: but but what you said is true too like and I I think that argument gets lost and no one ever brings it up about how you know you're you're gonna have to you're creating it regardless so you're gonna you're gonna hit that roadblock at some point, you know. I I just know for me, I would rather hit that roadblock in the outline than when I'm actually in the draft. So I think that, uh, you know, there's there's pros and cons. Um, I do want to br- I want to bring up one thing. I believe it was John that said it. Um, I, I like I love uh, the quote. I'm trying to remember exactly I said it, but it was like um, two or three hours of writing feels like eight hours of work. I I'm. I just recently within the past year came to that realization because I dealt with guilt for a long time when I went full time of like feeling like I had to be in that eight hour workday, which is bull crap. Like, you know, it's, that's made up anyway, you know, like, and, 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 uh and I don't know, like just the way he worded that, like uh, I thought was, I thought was really, really interesting. Like just cause, cause it really does like when you write for, few hours i mean it, it's exhausting and it does feel like you've worked for eight hours and you know i felt for a long time like i had to fill an eight hour work day and i got way past that and was like no i don't ha- no one's telling me i have to do that as long as i'm getting work done that satisfies me and makes progress in what i'm doing then i'm totally happy
4: yeah, I think a lot of people don't get that. I mean, it's honestly, it's, it's like playing chess for three or four hours straight. You know, it's it's like it's mentally exhausting. Um, you know, I, I, I on Saturdays and Sundays sometimes I'll I'll do work around the house. You know, a lot of these little you know honey list you know projects that that we need to knock out just because it's not mentally exhausting. It just allows me to do something to kind of take my mind off of it and give my, my brain a rest. Um, but if you're doing anything like that where you're dependent on you know whatever it is, if you're swinging a hammer for three hours, it's no different than you know squeezing words out of your brain for three hours. You know. You need to take a break, and you're going to get the best work done at the very beginning.
2: Yeah, and, and I think, too, I, I mean, I could have talked to these guys for days. They they were so much fun, and, and they were so good together. Like, you could see, you could clearly see the chemistry, not only as, you know, co-writers, but, you know, as, as father and son. But I, I love what they said about, like, the role of music or cooking. Like, it it really tied into this idea that, you know, as a creative, you need some nonverbal ways. Uh, if you're creating things with words, you need some nonverbal ways to kind of recharge your battery and rest up and, and to and to get ideas. And so whether that's baking a cake or playing on the piano or painting, um, any of that is a nice complimentary activity. And I know I don't do enough of that. I know I need to do more of that. I need more of that kind of stuff in my life. And, and that's this was a good reminder to hear that
4: a lot of that actually, you know, it, it's sort of the same thing. You know, like I, I used to write computer code and like if you write that first line of code, you need to understand what that program is going to do in the end. Um, and writing a book is very similar to that. You know, baking a cake is very similar to that. You know, you have to pick out all your ingredients. You know what that cake is supposed to look like when you finish. You know, that's the end of your book. And that framework kind of gets ingrained in your head. Um, you know, writing a song is the same thing, you know, and, and when you're working with another person, this is like collaborating in a band and you're playing the bass and somebody else is in there with lead
3: what you're saying is you have a recipe which is like an
2: outline
4: yeah wow (laughs) full circle it makes sense now
3: no but seriously like um yeah and i you know jay said i haven't done a good enough job of that either like i it's funny i've recently decided to kind of take up cooking um you know just because to do something different that doesn't that uses a different sort of creative muscle And because I realized, I'm like, man, I need to be doing more of like, I need to have a hobby. (laughs) You know, this used to be my hobby and now it's not, you know, and um, I I, I need to have some sort of constructive hobby uh, of some sort. So I've recently kind of started uh, taking up cooking as well. So that's, yeah, good to bring
4: that up. Well, that's probably. The, I, I never thought of it that way, but you know, like most of us, when we're you know, working day jobs, working that real job, this is our hobby, and then all of a sudden it gets completely flat, flipped on its head, and the thing you were doing for fun becomes your job. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you're right. How do you occupy that that time? You can pick up another hobby. You
3: know. Well, and I think too, like going back to what we were talking about a second ago, um, I think a lot of people when they when they are working a full time job, but maybe they're on their way to going full time with this. I think they automatically, and I know this happens because I've talked to plenty of authors, they assume, oh man, I'm I'm like, I'm only getting an hour of writing in a day and I'm working, I'm getting this many words in. What am I going to get to do when I have eight hours? It doesn't work like that. <laughs> I mean, I know we've talked to one or two people on this show that have are able just to crank out like, and I know people who can do like 12,000 words a day or whatever, but like for most people, I think that that's not realistic. And you have a limit of how many words you can hit regardless you know? So well,
4: do you guys do a full eight hour day? Even, even now
3: uh, for me, it depends. Like, I mean, it, you know, obviously, um, you know, uh, Jay and I both have our hats and other things as well. So, um, I, but writing, I, I usually write about three hours a day. Um, the rest of that is filled up with, uh, stuff that we're doing for events or, you know, uh, uh, other various things that we have going on, our marketing or things like that, but, or, you know, g- working out, going to the gym, like doing other things like that, you know? So but for me, it's about three hours.
2: Yeah. It's about the same for me, uh, two to three hours. Usually my first block of time, like my first part of the day when I'm freshest, that's when I get my words in. And then after that, it's, it's mostly admin stuff or podcast stuff or, or yeah. client work.
4: Yeah, I got a feeling if you were to ask around, it would be a, you get a very similar answer from anybody that, that works in the mornings. Two or three hours worth of productive writing time, and then a lot of admin stuff after that. And, and you know, we probably don't do a full eight hour day. You know, like I, I usually start around seven thirty eight, and I'm done at like 3 o'clock. Um, that's probably you know the, the norm, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of that honestly is probably still dictated by the rest of the you know, for lack of a better term, real world. You know, like all of my friends, you know, they're they're still working those eight hour j- days. You know, so if I quit at at twelve, that's that's fine and dandy. But like, if I want to go hang out with somebody, they're not going to be off work until, you know, later. So like that eight hour day is kind of ingrained in our heads, you know, no different than me taking Sundays off. Like I could just as easily take Wednesdays off if I I wanted to, but society in general, you know, Sunday is the day that we do it. So that's, that's what I do. So it's weird how those kind of things work out.
3: Yeah. And like I said, it took me a long time to get over that guilt, but I just, I have other things I want to do. Like I, I didn't go into this. Now, you know I went into this for having freedom of my time you know and, and once I realized well this is how much time I need to put in a day to make like progress and there's diminishing returns after that if I don't have admin stuff to do I'm gonna go ride my bike or I'm gonna go out to the park and go for a walk or I'm gonna I'm gonna go do other things to spend the afternoons with my daughter when she's off school you know and not feel guilty about it
2: so awesome cool. well um you guys gonna any more takeaways from the Kellermans
4: no, get out there and buy that book. It's called The Burning, and it comes out September 21st.
2: Yeah, if you're listening to us in real time, that is tomorrow. So we'll have links in the show notes, and you can go check it out. So, J.D., hey, so next week I, we have... I, oh, yes, I was... Else?
4: Oh No, I was going to actually change it up, because you always ask me what's coming next. I, I'm going to ask you this time. All right. What, what's on the next episode?
2: We have a special episode. Uh, if you guys are paying attention to the numbers, this is 99, which means our 100th episode is next. Uh, and I don't think, I don't, I don't know you guys extremely well, but I would have to say that you're kind of like me and that you just kind of show up day after day and you do the work and you don't think too much about it. And we haven't made too, mu- too much of a, of a deal about episodes or length of time we've been doing this, but 100th episode's kind of a special thing. Not a lot of podcasts make it to 100. So we are going to do a, uh, our monthly uh, Q&A episode. Uh, we're gonna do it live at the Career Author Summit. This weekend. How crazy did that timing work out? Yeah. Like, yeah,
3: the, the, this as we're recording, this weekend is the summit where we're all going to be in the same room. And me and JD are going to meet in person for the first time.
4: Yeah, first time we're all actually together. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I do like celebrating, so one of you guys has to bring cake. <laughs> so, I, don't,
2: <laughs> I don't care which one.
4: Either, either one of you. I don't do care. I get stuck
2: some... with that since I'm local. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on your wow. list. Cake plus 100 candles.
4: Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Can
2: I fit those on a cupcake? Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> i get three cupcakes. i get a one, a zero, and a
4: zero. There you go. Perfect. There you go. Spoiler. All right.
2: <laughs> well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.